0: Part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, as you're seated this morning, uh, get your Bibles and open up to Ephesians 5. We've kind of camped out there a little bit in this marriage series, and we're going to go back there today and also look into Colossians, another book that or letter that Paul wrote. And this morning, it's going to be a little challenging in the sense, I think, that we're going to take one of the cultural myths that I think that we have sometimes bought totally into uh, with the help of Hollywood and books and all kinds of romantic things that are out there. And sometimes I don't know that we have really gotten a, gotten a real biblical picture of, uh, of what God intends for us and the fullness of marriage. We get a little bit of that, but until we really come back to this you know, this core of what God has done by giving us this gift. And so this morning we are going to take kind of aim at one of those cultural myths and uh, uh, kind of that, you know, if you find the right one, then you can live happily forever after. You know, we see it all over the place, and sometimes it's, you know, just it's hinted. Sometimes it may be in the midst of a, of a little Nicholas Sparks novel or something, a, a little touch here. Jerry Maguire, years ago, remember that? Anybody see that movie, Jerry Maguire? And it kind of epitomizes some of that, that view toward this romantic love. Just find the right person, and everything will just work out wonderfully well. In, the, in that movie, uh, Tom Cruise plays Jerry Maguire. He as a a sports, uh, he represents sports athletes and and everything. And he gets fired from his one job, so he has to start his job. And Renee Zellweger plays this girl, kind of his counterpart, and she's kind of the administrative assistant and kind of the love interest there. And they have this, you know, up and down relationship that goes back and forth. And near the end of the movie, There's this time that that he comes in, and they've just sealed a big deal. And it's been a great day for the business. And he's all excited. And and yet there's something kind of missing in his heart because she wasn't there. And she's back there because they were kind of parted. And so he storms over the house and uh, opens up the door. And and they just happen to have this meeting that's going on with a whole bunch of ladies that um, are kind of angry at men. And uh, so it's not the, the most fruitful of situations to walk into. And this is the, the words that Tom Cruise says. He says, tonight was a very big night for our little experiment. A very big night for our little company. But it was not nearly as good as it could have been. It was not nearly as good as it would have been if you would have been there. You complete me. And everybody in the audience, you know, ah. Oh. And, and she, you know, she doesn't stop there and, and she goes, shut up. You shut up. You had me at hello. And then everybody else that didn't, ah, oh, the first time, ah, oh, was even bigger. And, and, and guys, you know, there's nothing wrong with romance. Please don't hear that. I, I love romance. I, I love that aspect of that gift that God has given us for us to be able to be romantic with those that we love. At the same time, we have to be very careful that we don't buy what the world is selling as, the, as far as, you know, thinking, okay, this is the epitome of life if we can find this. Because here's one thing: as well-meaning as your spouse may ever be, they can never complete you. And the most harsh thing that you could ever do in a marriage relationship, the most unChrist-like, uh, the most the biggest burden that you could ever place on on a spouse, is thinking that somehow they are their job, their role is to complete you. Only Christ can do that. That's not taken away from romance. That's not taken about, you know, the love that God has given us and all this. But, but it's just we want to be biblical in our foundation in everything that we do. We don't just be biblical about salvation. Okay, now that we're going to heaven, we're biblical about that. But can we just kind of borrow from the world all these other things? Because ultimately life and the fullness of life and the abundant life that Christ has come to give us. It's not just the assurance of our salvation. It's not just this ticket to heaven. So we can kind of rest. No, it's a call upon our lives to let the gospel message be mirrored and glorified in all that we do. As we saw in Ephesians 5 several weeks ago, he said kind of really, I, I would say this way, the epitome of this gospel picture is, is marriage. Now having said that, I realize that there are some people that are here that are single. God did say that there are some that are called to be single. They will remain single for the purpose of God. I do believe that, you know, that God did design marriage to, to probably be uh, you know, something that more people get involved with than not. I do think that it's not just going to be the percentages because that's a cultural thing. I think it really is God's design. And yet, as we open up God's Word and as we begin to see here, I want you to know that you know, the, the world, Hollywood and, and you know, even Nicholas Sparks, you know, and different people like that, even well-meaning people that are just trying to give us a view of romantic love, they sell something that is very dangerous for us to buy into. Because what they sell sometimes is is at minimum improbable, at most impossible, but mainly unbiblical. That doesn't mean you have to put away every one of your Nicholas Sparks romance uh, novels or something like that. Just, you know... To understand it is what it is, okay? Let's go to the Word of God if we want to know uh, what God has really said about this. And, and the main thing that I'm targeting there is that we really do see from our culture, we really do see this, this kind of permeating thought that if you find the right one, it is the key to life's happiness. If there's been one question I've been asked in... in uh, over these many years of, of ministry, is by, by young people especially, as they're approaching maybe proposing to somebody or starting their life with somebody, is do you believe that there's just one right person? And you have to be really careful. I, I've always tried to be very careful how I answer that. I'd, I would always give scriptural and biblical knowledge. And I said, you know, in the perfection of God, because he's just, he's that intimate, he's that perfect, he's that sovereign, I would answer that question, Yes that in the perfection of God, in the sovereignty of God, there, there would be maybe this you know this one person that God had ordained for us to marry. But I said, you know, practically speaking, I don't know that I can really do that because a couple reasons. Number one, let's just look at the logic of it. If one of you married the wrong person, you blew it for the rest of us. I mean, do you really think about it that logically? If there really was this one perfect person, and somewhere back there in the 1400s, somebody mismarried, didn't that kind of throw off the whole rest of the system? I mean, there really is a logical answer to that. Here, here's the main point, though, guys. We put so much emphasis, the world put so much emphasis on finding the right one, when the Bible always says, be the right one. Be the right one. More and more, you, you become like Christ. See, the closest we ever get is what we saw that very first week in Genesis chapter 2. And we talked about how, what theologians call this uh, purposeful void in Adam. Was there something that God created in Adam, a purposeful void, not a sinful void. It's before sin ever entered in this world. But he purposed that there would be this place in Adam that would be met with Eve. Yes. That's why we could say that Eve was a gift, a gift to Adam. So this is it's not good for this man to be alone. And so part of that was this relationship, and, and, and God wanted to gift that to Adam. That's why he had, remember, named the animals. He saw that they were kind of all matched up. And then he puts Adam to sleep, and then he wakes him up and says, okay, here's yours. And remember that proclamation that Adam said? Man, from my flesh, from my bone. Okay, this is the one, God, that you have made for me. So we're not going to minimize the importance of this relationship, both in just partnership and everything else. But folks, this is not the completion of us. And that somehow, if we miss the right person, that life as we know it is over, that there's no hope for for our life to be happy, or for us to fulfill what God has called us to do in our lives. See, that's the danger. All good theology has a foundation, and it's there for a reason. And it's because... <laughs> God just wants us to, to know that, uh, number one, he wants to know, us to know our sin and our fallenness so that we can run into the cross in every aspect of life. That there's a pathway in our lives every single day of us running back to the, the cross and, and the deliverance that we have through Christ and the finished work of Christ. Matt Chandler is one of my favorite uh, pastors. He pastors out in, in Texas, a Village Church. And... Uh, he was asked one time, how do you know that this is the right one? And I love his answer. And he says, when you exchange the vows and you put the ring on the finger in covenant before God, they become the right one. How i he say, okay, is this the right one? That does not mean that we put, you know, that there's not a, sp- a lot of spiritual wisdom, that there's not a lot of James 1.5 going on of seeking wisdom from God. Is this the right one? I, anybody who's ever come to me and said, "Hey, if you're walking with Christ, you need to have somebody who 's walking with christ. The bible says don't be unequally yoked and you know, there 's a lot of instruction that we get from the Word of God about this whole marriage thing and this partnership and this picking and choosing and all that. but guys, I really do think that sometimes if we have this illusion that there's this one right one, I just feel like sometimes we 've set ourselves up for, for and our partner, our, our spouse a lot of hurt. I think if we want to really take a biblical view of God's intention of marriage, we take that into the fullness, uh, it really comes down to, uh, I've been trying to give you different books that have meant a lot to me uh, on marriage, so that you could read those, and, and you know, I've told you about Tim Keller's book, about John Piper's book, I- add one more. There's a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage, it's an excellent book. And here's what he said, and I really think that it's probably much more biblically accurate than this whole idea out there in Hollywood of finding the right one, and that's the key to lifelong happiness. Here, here's what Gary Thomas says in his book, Sacred Marriage. He said, what if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness our comfort, and our desire to be infatuated. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Hey, have you seen those commercials where the person's mind blows up? If you're holding on to that right one, this one right, one Mr. Right, one Mrs. Right, I hope that when you read something like this and out in your mind is blown a little bit. And that that whole idea of just, you know, that your security and your happiness is all fixed upon this one person. See, this approach of finding the right one does two things. Number one, it takes the emphasis off of you becoming the right one, and it puts so much pressure on them. And so I want us to go back, and I want us to read again. We're going to read it kind of all the way through. Uh, I I really, even though it's going to be up here, if you have your Bible, I really want your Bible open so that you can read from your Bible this passage. We try to make it convenient by putting up here, and so that we can all have the kind of the same version. But there is nothing like your own personal Bible in our worship time for you to be reading from. And if you don't have one, you know, please let us know. We will get you one. We want you to have the Word of God in your home. And again, it will be up here. But I want you to to answer one question in your mind as we read back through Ephesians five twenty two through thirty. And I want you to ask this question: Is this instruction? From Paul about marriage, is it more about finding the right one or becoming the right one? With that question in mind, let's read. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are the members of his body. Now, in that passage, remember, there's a theological setting for that. There's a very practical application of that, as we've seen over the the last couple of weeks, but. Basically, when you read through that and you see that instruction, again, it's easy to say, well, that's Paul's view. No, God inspired Paul. Paul wrote it down. It's not that he just dictated it from God, but very much the Holy Spirit inspired it. This is God's Word. This is God's instruction on marriage. And in that instruction, when we just read those eight verses, do you see more of this idea of finding the right person or becoming the right person? Yeah. But we see much more of, okay, husbands do this, wives do this. Not in a task to be done, but in a way to live. See, here's going to be the biggest danger that I have this morning is the one thing I never want to do is to be a works-oriented preacher to where you, you think, okay, if I just do these three things, God is more pleased with me. No, I will take from Second Corinthians 5.21 that God is totally pleased in me because of the finished work of Christ, not because of the work that I've done. I don't take that in a callous or some kind of a, you know way. I, I take that in full humility, and I take it as the only right standing that I have with God. But in that right standing with God, through Christ, there comes instructions, and there comes a call into holiness in our lives, holiness in all matters, not Sunday for an hour, hour and a half, you know, why we go to church. But 24-7, this call to to reflect more and more the hope of the gospel, to reflect more and more this power of the gospel in our lives. He said that marriage is one of those key ways. Remember what we said. The gospel is not a reflection of marriage. He says later in that passage, he said marriage is a reflection of the gospel. He said there's this mystery there, and that word mystery means it's just now been revealed. You could not have known this back in Adam's time, in Moses' time, in David's time. You know it only now because Christ has died, he has risen from the dead, and he's had victory over the grave. Now you can understand a better picture of marriage. Not because all of a sudden the gospel is you know, used to, to reflect marriage, but, but marriage is a picture of the gospel. That is so essential, folks, for us to kind of get a grasp on that, to to understand this. And and so here we have this wife submitting. We have this uh, husband sacrificial giving himself up, uh, not in a call to find the right one, but to become the right one. And that's why I believe that God uses marriage as one of um, the major tools in our lives for a process, a theological process that we call sanctification, And whenever I throw a word out there, there's going to be many of you that know exactly what justification, sanctification, glorification, you're going to go, that's old school. But there will be some here this morning that that's not old school to. And and one thing I want to do is that, that we just don't throw around words without understanding that we really have, when we leave here, a little bit of a grip on what that means. And so let me go over those three things. Now, for all the deep theologians here, please understand that I'm trying to teach on somewhat of an elementary level. Well, Bobby, there's there's really, you need to be a little bit more clear. Understand that we can get very deep into progressive sanctification and all that kind of stuff. I can have that discussion with you a little bit later on. But for right now, can we just kind of grab onto these three words? And this is the transformation that takes place in the life of every believer. Everybody who's put their trust in Christ as our Savior. Not everybody who's ever walked forward and signed a role at a church, not everybody who got wet in a baptismal pool, but everybody who's truly put their faith and their hope and all their uh, hope to to be right with God in the finished work of Christ. Here's the three things that happened. Number one, at that moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, at that moment, you were justified before a holy God. Again, we can go back to 2 Corinthians 5:21. We can point to verse after verse after verse of how we were made right with God. Justification is basically this, that we were declared righteous and made right with God. So whether you were 6 years old, whether you were 16 years old, you were 86 years old, when you trust Christ, I just said a prayer, i repeated some words, but you really trust, hey, I, I'm a sinner. I cannot be right with God, a holy God, on my own, no matter how hard I would try. I trust Christ was his answer. When you do that, at that moment, you are justified before a holy God. So justification is instantaneous. And it starts this other, if you want to say process, called sanctification, and that uh, basically means to become holy, to be set apart. The word holy is set apart. And in this process of sanctification, it really is uh, one of my favorite verses is Romans eight twenty nine there about how we're made more and more into the image of Christ. That every day we, we should be looking a little bit more like a follower of Christ, Christ-likeness in the things that we do, the attitudes that we have, the, the way that we approach life. And that's a very long process. And I'm convinced now at the age of 53 that it's not going to be finished until I take my last breath. Okay. And then there's this glorious thing that happens uh, uh, later in the Bible called about our, our glorification. And that's when, it, during this time of glorification, it's where God removes us from from the presence of sin. So here's a simple way. If you go, hey, I don't like deep theology. I just don't want all these big words. Let me give you a real simple way. Can we go to that next time? Uh, And again, for all the deep theologians, give me a little bit of license here, okay? Just want to be able to plant in people's minds these three things. Number one, justification. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. So if you're a Christian, that's what has happened. Sanctification, that's what's happening now. We are being saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has to have dominion over us. And then ultimately, one day, we will be glorified. We will see God as he is. We will have perfected bodies, perfected minds, perfected everything. Why? Because he will take away the presence of sin. We've been saved from the presence of sin. When you read in the Bible about no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, all this, it's not, a, it's not just, oh, we learned how to be better people. No, the whole presence of sin has been taken away. There is no sin in heaven. So these three things are happening. Now, why do I really spend some time on that? Because I believe that this middle one, the sanctification, that it really is God's gift to us and that marriage really is probably a a, a big way that he uses this whole sanctification, this process going on in life, that he uses our spouse in that. That does not mean, again, if you're here this morning, you're single, or you're single again, or you're in that, you know, you're not in a marriage. doesn't mean that God has just left you out so that nobody's there to sanctify you. It's just in this intimate relationship of marriage, this is not a place you can go and hide. But folks, it's really not that hard to be good for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. I mean, is it really that hard? Would it be really that hard to freak everybody out here to, to somehow you know, put forth a you that is not really you, and that for an hour and a half you shine that exterior, you even say a couple of holy words, and during praise and worship you even throw your hand up there for a little while. It's not that hard. I'm not mimicking that. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying it's not that hard. But then I go home. And that's why my wife says, hey, do you remember what you preached last Sunday? God uses this meaningful person in our life a lot of times for this whole process of becoming more Christ-like. And I want you to go over now to Colossians. Uh, You know, We wanted to look at Ephesians 5 because I hope that you were able to answer that with biblical conviction, not with my sway, but with biblical conviction that this is not a passage about you finding the right person. It is much more a passage about you in Christ being the right person. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Colossians, a very similar book written to another church, covered a lot of the same topics. That's why it sounds kind of the same sometimes when we open up Ephesians or, or uh, Philippians or Colossians, but especially Colossians and Ephesians have a lot of similarities. And what he's doing in chapter 3, Paul is writing in chapter 3 about this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. He says, now that you're in Christ, here, here's the things that, that are happening. Look what it says, Colossians one." if then you have been raised with Christ, he didn't say if then you go to church, if then you try to be a very moral person, if then you got wet when you were seven years old during vacation Bible school. He didn't say any of those things. He said if you've been raised with Christ, that is you've put your full trust and your rightness with God in the work of Jesus Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he gives instructions to these people. And hopefully that I would be talking about us cool, you know, uh, individually and then collectively this morning. I would hope that everybody has come to that place of trusting Christ for your Savior. If so, then here's this instruction, this call that he gives us. Look at verse 2 and 3. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. It's our vision for 2016 got to die in order to really live. And he says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul continues this instruction and this call upon our lives, and the people that are raised with Christ, he says, he gives us some examples of what this would look like. Don't you like when you're kind of uninformed about something, about those teachers that would say, and an example of that is this. You're going, okay, now I get it. Now when you were talking theory, I was kind of lost, but now you gave me an example and I can kind of grasp it a little bit. Well, that's what Paul does here. He gives the theological theory, the truth, and then he comes back and he says, but here's kind of what it looks like. Here's a way that you can grasp it in everyday life. And look what he says in verse 12 and th- 14, through 14. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, And patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, now let's be real clear. He didn't say you became right with God because you started becoming a little bit more humble. You started becoming a little bit more patient. You're a really kind person. You you helped little old ladies across the street. He doesn't say you become a Christian because you do these things. He says now that you've been raised with Christ, now that Christ is the whole hope of your life, he said here's the things that become to ooze out of you in your lifestyle and the way that you just breathe life that begin to look like Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Here's what it looks like. And, and God says put on them. literally it means to invest in clothing. I mean the Greek word there means to invest in clothing. I'm going to go to a wedding, and and I'm actually doing the wedding. I'm going to wear my nice black suit, maybe. And if I don't have a nice black suit, I'll I'll probably go invest in some clothing. clothing. Why? Because I I want to look the part. If I'm going to play the part, I want to look the part. If I'm going to fill that call to be the pastor that would join that couple together in matrimony, I, I want to look the part. This way, he says, put on them, invest in this. In other words, uh, put this on your lives to look like Christ. And then what he begins to put out there is this picture of selflessness. Isn't that what really humility is? Thinking less of yourself and more of others. Isn't that really what kindness is? And you get right down that is less of yourself, less of a focus of, of yourself. I mean, have you ever noticed somebody that is oblivious that anybody else exists in the store or in the restaurant or whatever it might be? I mean, it's kind of, at least for that moment, it's the picture of selfishness. Man, they don't know that anybody else. They do not realize that the whole rest of us here are kind of in their wake. No, the, what we see here by Paul by, by telling us about, Put on compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. This is a picture of selflessness. And really, I believe that that's one way that you could define what does actual sanctification look like, Pastor. What do you, what do you, you know? This you got this big six dollar theological word, but what does it look like? Well, if it's the picture of Christ. But even though he was not the sinner, he died for our sin. I mean, was he not the ultimate example of not just the morality of, of kindness and, and patience and meekness and, and humility and all these things? I mean, go back and read Philippians two when it says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. And he shows us this humility, and he calls us now into this humility. That's what Paul says in Philippians two. Have this mind, what mind? This hum, humble mind of Christ, this example of humility, that he would die in your place, not because you deserved it. He says, this mind you have. And, and that's what Paul is calling us to here. A, a Very much a selflessness, an other-centeredness, other than a self-centeredness. Let me pick three of these things. Let me give you an example of what, how that kind of plays out in marriage. And then we'll go home and we'll practice it. Let's take the first one, compassionate hearts, verse 12. He said, Have a compassionate heart. Definition of compassion basically, you look it up in in the dictionary, it says that you have concern for someone who is sick, hurt, and poor. In this room, that would include all of us. In some way, you are sick, (laughs) you are poor. And you need help. Amen? I mean, and, and so compassion isn't just feeling about, man, I really feel bad. But, but it's being sensitive to the need that of, of, you know, everybody else that, that's around us. It's amazing to me that over the years and, and, and literally thousands of counseling sessions, they come in and the first thing is, can you fix him? Well, he's sitting right there. And she just beat him to the punch because he was just about to say, can you fix her? And it's just, you know, who who's, can draw the fastest? And, and their philosophy of, hey, if this marriage is going to go on, if, if this is going to be a great marriage, if this is going to be a, a survivable marriage, then then somehow you've got to fix her, you've got to fix him. That's not what the Scripture says. And it's certainly not what Paul is pointing us to here, what God is calling us to here. He said, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, take seriously this calling in your life, he says, you start reflecting the very attitude, the mindset of Christ in this. Folks, it is not about finding the right one. It's about becoming the right one. There's an element of compassion that you can easily define it by. Remember the old phrase, walk a mile in their shoes? In one way, you can define compassion that way. That as you live in their skin, as you walk in their shoes, as you live as closely as you can through their experiences, you go, man, I just didn't realize my wife, you know, I love my boy and I love my daughter. I did not realize until she went away for the weekend, they're a pain sometimes. They're a handful. That will flat wear you out. When I came home and said, well, I'm the one with the job, you just stay at home with the kids. He obviously has not walked in those shoes. And it's that lack of compassion that, that makes us very self-centered. doesn't make us other-centered. Well, what he's talking about, having this compassionate heart, is can you really put yourself in their place? Now, nobody can do that 100%. We're all unique and we're specially made by God. But we can force ourselves to get out of the self-centeredness of our own lives and say, what is my spouse? really going through? Why are they snapping back like that? Why are they really short? Why are they weeping all the time? Why are they frustrated? Why when I walk in the door, do they almost immediately go to to number 9 or 10 on the Richter scale? And trying to understand that, I, I believe, is an application of of what it means, the sanctification. It doesn't sound real holy when we start applying it to marriage, but folks, sanctification is a theological word that basically says this is how you live it out. And where do you live if you're married a lot of times? In your marriage. It's not an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's this 24-7 relationship that God has given you there. It's much more of an empathy than just a sympathy. I'm going to give you three questions, one related to each of these three things I'm going to give you. And here's the first question. Carly and I have not done these. We're going to do these later on today or tomorrow or during the week. And and to give us compassionate hearts, here's a great discussion starter, okay? Your, Your homework this week is to ask these three questions to each other. First question. Or let me phrase it differently. Do you know your spouse's biggest fear? In their life right now. Do you know what they fear the most? See, that, that, that will give you a compassionate heart. I don't know what they fear, but I know what I fear. Yeah, we know what we fear. That's kind of self-centered. doesn't mean that's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not valid feelings. But, but it's not that compassionate heart. For me to have a compassionate heart, to ask my wife, what is, what is your biggest fear right now? What is it that doesn't go away just because we close our eyes at night? What is it at 2 o'clock in the morning that you wake up? What what is your biggest fear right now? Now, from a very practical, I'm not saying that it's not spiritual, but from a very practical point of view, can you see where that would give you a compassionate heart if you knew the answer to that? If you knew the answer to what is your biggest fear in your life right now, all of a sudden you're going, okay, number one, I need to know if I need to bring roses, a Rambo. You know, I just need to, you know, I need to know when I get the door, you know, what, what attitude, because here's what they're facing. But it also gives us an ability to come back and if that fear and some, you know, that vulnerability that we can come back to Scripture and, and, and say, oh, you're, you're battling that? Well, honey, can I just pray for you? Can, can I just pray over you? Hey, here's what the Word says. That, man, we're hidden in Christ now. And we really get back to the heart of the gospel And we get to live out the gospel in the midst of a very practical life. Second one. And I'm not going methodically through these, but another one that I think that we could all learn from, when it says bearing with one another. Literally means restrain. That that word in the Greek means restrain your natural reaction. That's good, isn't it? To bear with one another is to restrain your natural reaction. In other words, this is how you naturally would react when your spouse does this or that. Here's the natural reaction that is, you know, we use this word unfiltered. Well, life unfiltered, we just kind of say what we mean and we mean what we say. And there's no guard. There's no pretense. There's no really hope. It's just we say it. Well, bearing with one another, the, the, the actual wording, that word that's used there, to restrain your natural reaction. Remember we, last week we were talking about how uh, in marriage we get attracted to people for certain traits? Oh, he's laid back. And then three years in the marriage, he is a lazy bomb. And the very thing that attracted us to that person, the very, you know, whatever that characteristic is, well, I say it this way. The things that used to attract us, you know, when we first we attract and then we attack. Because about three or four years in the marriage, it's like, man, I just thought you were laid back. I didn't know you were lazy. But now with my eyes, I can see more and more. I thought you were here high spirited. I didn't know that it was your way or the highway. I thought you were a real social person. I didn't know that that meant that we were going to have to go out every weekend to all these different parties. That we just can't stay at home. Things that attracted us to that person because it was different from us, they were different, but now that we're kind of in this married life, we're starting to resent it a little bit more, and we actually start to attack those things. This bearing with one another means, okay, your natural reaction would be this. But get, again, get back in their skin. What are they thinking? How do you bear up with them? Because think about it this way. Every one of these are a reflection of Christ in our lives. Has Christ ever had a compassionate heart toward you? Has he ever bore with you to bear with you? See, there's, there's our model. There's our calling. We're going to see it in the next one when we talk about forgiveness. It says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Paul just comes right out and says, okay, what is the, what, where do we go to get this measure of forgiveness? We go back to the example of Christ. And that would be, he says in the last one, but he certainly implies it into all of these. So here's the question. Here's the question to discuss this week. Do you know what your spouse's biggest frustration is right now? What was their biggest fear? But what is their biggest frustration? Because when we get frustrated, that's sometimes when we act out in these different natures, and it really is hard to bear with people. Well, I would have handled it this way. As helpful as that is, sometimes that's the last thing that I want to hear. Anybody with me on that from your spouse? As helpful as it is, well, I really think you should have handled this way. I would have done it this way. This is after I've already stepped in it, guys. This is after I've already done, you know, and and I already, you know, the the sin has been committed. You know, the, the fault is there. And as much as I need that in an edifying way, in a building up way, sometimes when it just comes out, that first reaction is, well, the next time you can do it. We've never said that in our marriages, have we? The next time you just go to the grocery shopping and you'll have the syrup that you want. Do you know your spouse's biggest frustration? What, what, in your life right now, what is their biggest frustration? Last one, and then we'll go home and work on these things. Forgiving each other. A great theologian said one time, you will never be more like Christ in this earthly life than when you forgive those things that seemingly are unforgivable. We will never model Christ like us more than we forgive without strings of attachment. Christ didn't say, oh, Bobby, I forgive you if you do these three things. He said, I forgive you. Why? Because I love you. And I laid down my life so that you can live life. And and so the challenge here, again, these are not, please understand, these are not, You know, Paul is not writing these in the light of marriage. He's not saying, no, to have a good marriage, think about each one of these in a marital status. He's doing it to to all of Christianity, to all application. But if you go a little bit farther in Colossians chapter 3 and you get down there, uh, then he turns into a very practical life and he says, okay, wives do this, husbands do this, fathers and, and parents do this, employers do that, employees do this. He makes it very practical and he ties this life and these calls into our lives. So while he's not directly talking to each one of these, uh, saying, okay, marriage is this, the application is there. And the death knell to any relationship, to any relationship, is the lack of forgiveness. The living water of every relationship forgiveness brings hope back into the situations that seem hopeless brings a heart back, beat back to, to that seems that seems to have been so dead and lifeless well Bobby that would be good know I, I could do that if there just wasn't any if when I went to the Face of Calvary folks there wasn't a single if that I had to meet a single condition he just said I died for you and there wasn't a single if there wasn't a single condition that I had to meet just by faith trusting the work of Christ here's the third question then we'll go do you know what your spouse feels like they're failing at right now the first one is, do you know your spouse's fear? Do you know their biggest frustration was the second one? Do you, do you know what they feel like they're feeling, fa- failing at? Because here's the thing. Ladies, forgive us. But as guys, even to our wives, we don't like to admit to anybody that we felt anything. That's why back in third grade, we had to go check with three friends before we'd sent that letter that says, do you like me or not, circled one or the other one. You know, it was pretty much a done deal. We'd already checked with Susie, Betty, and, you know, Francis, you know, before we ever asked, you know, Peggy, and I use old names like that because that way people know, he was talking about me in church, before we ever got to peggy and asking her if she liked us or not we had checked it out and at least we had a pretty much a three count to the affirmative that this was safe territory and so we proceeded on like a champion but all the way we were scared as we could be we're not really good at admitting our fears and our failures even to that which that which we would love most, maybe even the, more so, because we love you and respect you, that we don't want to look like a failure. But I'm talking about, you're talking about an important question to understand, to really get the heart of the person. You know, what do you feel like a failure? What is it, what you, you just, you're know, you frustrated and you're just fearful, what, what is it that you just feel like, you know, you're a failure at? And that will tell you more about your spouse will give you that ability to really come in there and have a compassionate heart, to truly bear with them and even forgive them when you never know that they were waiting for forgiveness. Does that make sense? It's built on good theology, folks. Good truth is always going to lead into practical life. Now, if we just said these things apart from the gospel, apart from the theology, then it could still be truth because God's truth is truth. But if we don't base it on the model of Christ and the the, the surety of the scriptures, then we're just talking philosophy, we're just talking psychology, we're just kind of talking culture. But when we see that these things are rooted into our relationship with Christ, and these are calls upon our lives, then at that point we can say, okay, God, thank you that you took that which was theological and you made it very practical. You're a very loving God. Thank you that you truly are concerned about my sanctification. my my daily growing more and more into Christ-likeness and holiness, and that you've even put this one beside me to help me in this process. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, there is so much more there. Father, there is so much to your word. We could have gone down each one of these verses. Father, we could have uh, stayed here for three or four more hours. And yet, Father, I pray that you have just planted into our hearts and our lives this morning. Both the practical, but also a foundation that we know is just biblical. And Father, I don't know how many came in this morning with a real kind of philosophy of, hey, if I find the right one, then I will, that's just the key to, to happiness and a good life. But Father, I pray that we would leave here as people going, okay, God, will you help me more and more and more to be the right one, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to submit it to my husband and to his uh, leadership and and to encourage him. Uh, Will you help me to reflect Christ's likeness in this marriage relationship? Father, I I thank you for that. Father, for those that are not married, that are thinking about marriage, they plan maybe one day to be married, I, I pray that you will... Uh, put this in the the file of their mind, in their heart, that this would be part of of the wisdom that you would give them as they would go out seeking a mate. For those that are single again, Father, I pray that you would breathe into their heart and their life hope. This is not judgment. This is not condemnation. But Father, for those that are married here today, I, I pray that you would use this series, this morning, your word, the power of your spirit to help this church reflect the gospel to a world out there that's so desperately looking for a place to to place their lives, to hold their trust, to give them living water. Thank you, Father. Lead us now in this time of invitation, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.